all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fawson. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We also want to thank Eisenhower Center. It's a brain injury recovery center. Learn more about eisenhowercenter.com. They're located in Michigan and in Florida. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at legalhelpforveterans.com. Contact us if you'd like to be a sponsor on Veterans Radio, and let's move on to our program. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Abe Carmack. Abe, welcome to Veterans Radio. Hi, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Well, this is a Navy veteran who's in a really interesting business venture that we want to talk about, True Made Foods. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, let's talk a little bit about how a nice kid like you ended up in the Navy. <laughs> yeah, good question, right? Um, actually, my parents never would have guessed that I would. Well, no, they, I, I knew at a young age I wanted to go into the military, and I've always talked about it. They figured it was just a. They thought it was just a phase, didn't they? Right, right. Yeah, my, yeah, my uh, baby boomer hippie parents were not into the the whole idea. So, uh, but they, they actually, they turned their, <laughs> they changed their tune when they found out the Navy would pay for college. So <laughs> <laughs> they were very excited by that proposal. Um, so that really turned them around and actually, and they've been really proud and, uh, excited since then of it. Um, and impressed too. So I mean, I think you know, you know, they they weren't like anti-military or anything. Like well, that. you grew um, you grew up in Washington D.C. and you went to yeah. Vanderbilt University, uh, which is uh, you know uh, not cheap. Uh, right. So, so t- talk to us through uh, getting through Vanderbilt and then the eight years uh, in the Navy as a Seahawk uh, helicopter pilot. Yeah, well, I mean, I, actually, I split my time growing up. We I was born in D.C. and when I was ten, we moved to. Uh, we, we moved to Brooklyn, New York, and then uh, we lived in Brooklyn um, in the 80s and early 90s until like 19, I was 16 in like 1993. And then I, we moved back to uh, Bethesda, Maryland, which was really nice, uh, quite a, a change for me. Um, and, you know, I finished school, public school in Maryland, um, and then um, <clears throat> got my 
you know, and I applied to the Naval Academy and I applied for my ROTC scholarship. Um, and I was luckily enough to accept it to the Naval Academy. And I also ended up getting my ROTC scholarship and um, decided uh, to turn down my, my placement at the Naval Academy uh, to go to Vanderbilt uh, on ROTC uh, scholarship, which for me was the right decision. I always think back, I think that was a good decision for me because I just think I needed uh, some time to grow up and mature and like get some wildness out of me. And I think you have the, I wouldn't have been uh, a good placement at the Academy. Like I probably would have gotten in trouble way too much. Um, (laughs) To be be honest about it, you don't tell your kids that today, but to be honest about it. We're pushing our kids towards the Academies. Of course we live in Northern Virginia right now. So trying to get them into the Academies from this, (laughs) this area is like so hard, but um, that's another whole nother story. But yeah, we are, um, but then, uh, yeah, my wife is a Naval Academy graduate, so we met in service. So, you know, obviously, so we've been been a big fan of, uh, you know, Navy ever since. And, you know, they've become our, our go-to college football team to cheer for since we live in Northern Virginia. It's yeah, well, you know, it, you enjoyed it this year, that's for darn sure. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, the season wasn't great, but then, you know, they ended on the right note. All you have to do so. is beat Army. <laughs> right. It's quite, yeah, it's an interesting team to, to cheer for in that way. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's a, it, and it's a little bit more fun than, uh, than Vanderbilt because uh, I'm rooting for Vanderbilt. So uh, I still root and cheer for Vanderbilt as a football team. It's, it's, it's painful sometimes. Um, what was your, yeah. what was your undergraduate degree in? I did a uh, international relations East Asian studies focus. Um, because I was taking Japanese at the time and, you know, I wasn't going to get uh, credit for it because I had tested out on needing a language requirement unless I was part of my major. And so, you know, I didn't want to be taking all these hours of the language that doesn't you know, now, go towards Now, remember, degree. remember, Veterans Radio listeners, we're talking to Abe because he's now the owner uh, and founder of this food company. So we just heard his undergraduates in international relations, and he's gone through Vanderbilt on a ROTC scholarship, so he's got to do his payback to the U.S. Navy, and you become a helicopter pilot. None of this yet sounds like you should have anything to do with the food industry. Yeah, yeah, that's a crazy thing about the food industry, right? But, yeah, it's... um... I mean, what's, it's just what happens. Um, I think actually my Navy time, and I think specifically being a Seahawk helicopter pilot, I was a, a LAMPS pilot, a Bravo uh, pilot, with Bravo version, which means we, we flew off of, uh, they're now called the Romeos. Um, that's how old I am. They've been, re- we've been, you know, your airframe has been replaced. But my, <clears throat> the airframe I flew, the Bravo was, um, the 60 Bravo flew on the back of small boys on uh, cruisers and destroyers and things like that. And frigates. And we uh, deployed in small detachments. And, you know, you had to be a, you're a multi-mission um, aircraft. So you had to be ready to, for your missions to change all the time. And you had to be training all the time to do different types of things. And that's a lot about like uh, entrepreneurship because you have to kind of be a jack of, when you're the founder, you have to be a jack of all trades and a master of none. Um, you have to be able to understand everything. I got to be able to understand finance and sales. I got to be able to do it but I don't have to be the absolute expert at it. I just have to be, you know, 80% proficient, 75% proficient at it. Um, 
and then when things get really important, then I can hire out for somebody who is the, you know, the full expert. That's when you call in the chief on the helicopter, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's it. Yeah. That's when you call in the maintenance chief, the chief and be like, hey, I have no idea what's going on with this. You got to fix this. So, but yeah, the, um, and I probably broke it, but they, uh, yeah. So that's kind of the point, like being a pilot, in the Navy, especially a helicopter pilot, especially my airplanes, is I think was a really good preparation for um, entrepreneurship. That way, is like being entirely flexible, and and you know I think as an officer too, you're you're not expected to be an expert in any one thing necessarily. You have to be um, <clears throat> you have to kind of be uh, always have the the big picture is what you're supposed to be doing. Like at least that's how we were trained. Um, you know, to always know the big picture and be focused on the big picture and know how everything works together and being able to rely on your people who know more about you on certain uh, certain things, uh, certain areas where where specific uh, knowledge is really important. Um, specific and deep knowledge is really important. So, you, like you, food, you, uh, but wait a minute, because I want to. I'm going to get bring this closer to why this uh, Navy uh, officer thought he could actually pull this off. Um, After getting out of the service, uh, you went and got your MBA at the London Business School. And uh, after that, your career took you into the food business or food industry, um, not specifically into making condiments, if you will, but gave you sort of this global picture of uh, how the food industry works kind of on a worldwide basis. Give us a little bit of that, and then we'll we'll get into 2015 when you actually decided, hey, I'm going to give this a try. Yeah. Um, I actually had a crazy time. Um, I think, you know, people today have it a little bit easier when you're getting out. There's a lot more programs for you, um, things like this. Well, to say the worst is I actually got my MBA while I was still in, which was a huge benefit. I was lucky. Um, I was stationed in England. Um, at RAF Molesworth, um, and I was able to do, they, they let me do an executive MBA. So I did my executive MBA at London Business School. So just commuting down um, to London on weekends and at nights, um, and then sometimes doing like taking a week of leave and doing a, a class in a week. Um, and so that was uh, a great experience. I was really lucky to be able to do that. Um, the problem is, is I graduated and got out um, I graduated from my MBA in 2007 and got out of the military in uh, January 2008. And, um, you know, one of the worst times to ever leave military service um, because it was, you know, the, the deep part of the recession, recession yeah. just taking off. And, uh, yeah, and I was not prepared for I, – I wasn't prepared for looking – I did not do a good job of preparing myself for looking for employment, like, post – I just kind of had this idea and thought that like, oh, I got this great, fantastic MBA right now. And they somehow the, the top MBA schools um, do a little bit of a bad job of this where they do really build you up thinking like, oh, you've got this MBA. Everybody's going to want to hire you right now. And that's not even in the best of times. That's not always really true. You really do need to hustle and figure out what industry you want to get into, especially if you're switching industries. Um, and this is the challenge with the veterans too. It's like, we don't know how to communicate our skills. We don't know how to communicate what we do well. Um, and it's not hard. I mean, I would, I would tell any veterans that are looking at getting out and if you figure you want to go into an industry, 
is just to do as much research as you can about that industry. Like how, what are the economics of it? You know, do a Porter's five forces kind of analysis on the industry, figuring out who the big players are, what the economics are like, what the pricing is like, figure out as much as you can. There's a lot more of that information available now, obviously, because you know, the internet's exploded so much more. And there's so many more people you can reach out to and talk to them um, of, you know, about how the industry works. Um, what is really critical for success in that industry so that when you go into an interview, you can, one, you can write your uh, specific resume or cover letter or your application to a job focused on that. And then, um, then you can, you know, write, uh, then you can answer real questions in the interview where it's not just like, oh, I'm a team player. And, you know, I learn really fast, you know, everybody says that and, you know, everybody says that and it's 99%, it's not true, right? Everybody, veteran or a non-veteran, they always say those those same things. And if you're hiring, like now I've been in a position to hire all the time and like I, you hear that stuff and you're just like, yeah, I've seen, everybody says that and it's almost never true. Um, so we, people who are hiring just discount those statements, right? Because um, it's just a constant, it's just noise. Um, so you want to hear where people are like, well, I see the thing that will win you over in an interview is like going in and saying, like, well, I see what your industry, like and what you're doing right here is really great. I feel like I could help you with this by doing X and Y and helping yeah, you take yeah, more, more, level. more specifics and, and more specific. And, yeah, and I, get, I guess I'm kind of interested. And I'm going to have you fast forward through this period because there's like seven years between when you get out and, and uh, yeah, before you start crew made foods and, and that really lays the background or the foundation, if you will, for being able to go into this new venture. Right. So, yeah, what happened to me, I mean, I got out in 2008. Um, nobody was hiring. Um, I would get interviews, but it was just, they were just going through the motions. And again, I wasn't very great at the interviews at the time, too. I wasn't prepared. I wasn't, I didn't trade. I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and uh, I really, I was not prepared. And, you know, being, having eight and a half years uh, in the Navy didn't help me at all either when everybody was looking for a job because everything was falling apart. And um, like these industries like banking and consulting were falling apart and they were firing people and they weren't hiring, but they were going through the motions to pretend like everything was fine. Um, and so you get an interview, but there wouldn't be a chance that you had a chance to get in there. Um, and it's, they especially wouldn't hire somebody who has eight and a half years of military experience and zero corporate experience. Right. Um, so you, you quickly become in that type of situation. I quickly became the you know, bottom of the rung. So <clears throat> my wife and I had just had our first kid. My wife had been out for, she got out a few years before me. Um, she got her grad degree in public policy and economics from LSE. We had student debt. We had our first kid and we were pregnant with our second. And we were living in London with only savings in dollars and the pound was two to one. Um, so it was not a great situation. Um, my my granddad was getting near to the end of his life. He was in his um, mid nineties at this point, and he was starting to gift out some of his money. So he gave us like nine thousand dollars, and that helped us survive. Um, so that was a huge help. Um, and then we did some consulting work and things like this. We would find odd, you know, consulting jobs that we would be able to do. But this is that situation of like really no job prospect, no aspect whatsoever, and you know just everything looming over us was really scary. And that's kind of what drove me into this whole, really pushed me more into the entrepreneurship thing and being able to do anything in any place, anywhere. 
Um, and that drove me then to go into emerging markets because, um, and I was always interested in emerging markets, but uh, this really pushed me in because that was the only place where you could really find a job at the time. Um, so I actually took a job in Bulgaria. Like two weeks after my second son was born, I moved to Bulgaria. My wife moved back to the US and lived with my parents. I took a job in Bulgaria where I ran a plastics factory. I do nothing about plastics. I didn't speak Bulgarian. Um, we lived in a small town. And uh, that was like an MBA for uh, like a post MBA uh, doctorate, I guess. It was because I was actually running a business, hiring and firing people, trying to doing financial statements, trying to raise money for the business to keep it going. All these different things at the same time and trying to make this business profitable that had been unprofitable for three years. Um, and so that was like a great thing. that, re And that really, even though that didn't really work out because the owner was a jerk and he was a American hedge fund guy living in London. And as soon as we made the company profitable, he took all the money out to cover his losses in the market. Um, so that was another lesson, a hard lesson on that. You know, you, you don't trust the finance guys. Um, and, uh, and two that, uh, we, uh, yeah, that, but I was, I learned, and so financially it didn't work out great, but I learned a ton about how to run a real business, like a manufacturing business and run with real products and things like that. Um, and have a and it's a lot, it's a lot different. Like it's a lot different running it, a real business as compared to the consulting, uh, into somebody Usually. else's business. So, so I can imagine how much additional, sort of uh, not only stress, but things that you learn when you're uh, feet in the factory floor. But I, but I don't, I, I don't want to, I don't want to. Yeah. I would encourage anybody and everybody to try, if you really want to get into business is really to be in that type of situation um, where you're dealing with real products and real sales and real, um, and, you know, real working capital uh, constraints. Um uh, you know, when in business school and pre 2008, like the consultants like McKinsey were like deified almost. And uh, one of my good friends from Vanderbilt, who was also ROTC, um, uh, he was a year ahead of me and he was a surface warfare officer and he had gone to London first. And uh, he was the one, he got his MBA before me, he did his executive, and he is the one who convinced me actually when I moved there to do the executive MBA at London Business School as well. But he got out in 2005 and, you know, when the market was peaking and, you know, he did a really good job of making sure, figuring out what he wanted to do. And he got hired by McKinsey. Um, while I was running the Bulgarian factory, I like went back to London <clears throat> to meet with the owners and I stayed with him. And uh, he'd been working for McKinsey for like three years by that point. And, uh, you know, just the we compared like the stuff that we were doing and. You know, the stuff we were going I, I just knew so much more just by running a factory in for four months than he did for being consultant for three years. Yeah, like absolutely. The, the knowledge gap was huge. Um, and like the tools, we were scrappy. We At the time, we were using free, uh, Google Mail for our email, which was free and using all these Google um, Office things now, which is something that almost everybody does. Um, at the time, it was free. It was an amazing thing. And like, uh, and he was, uh, McKinsey was still using Lotus Notes for their email. It was like <laughs> the lack of innovation at this huge company that was supposed to be like this leader in business was was shocking. Um, so it just goes to show like, yeah, really the scrappy, the small guys really do know a lot uh, more and you, you learn a lot more in those situations if you come in with the right attitude. Uh, well, let me, let me jump attitude. off on something because you just used the word uh, innovative and scrappy and small. And whenever you start a new venture and we're, we're talking to the founder of 
um, True Made Foods, which is a unique condiment company that uh, Navy veteran Abe Carmack founded. You, you have to be scrappy because uh, you are small and you have to be innovative. And really the, what you tackled was this problem in condiments, which is they're just loaded with sugar. And, and right. you said, hey, we, we can do something different in this space. But again, it's sort of like, who are you to think you could actually pull this off? <laughs> right. I mean, it's uh, and really, if you look at the rational side of it, like you, nobody should ever try to do something like this ever. Like uh, entrepreneurship and starting a new product is, is extremely hard. Uh, so like for us, you know, when you look, I looked at ketchup. I, I always knew that ketchup was terrible for you. It, it is. If you've never looked at the nutritional value of ketchup, like it's awful. It's loaded with sugar. It's two thirds sugar. Um, there's a quarter pound of refined sugar or corn syrup in every single bottle of ketchup um, and a 20 ounce bottle of ketchup and um, a standard ketchup Heinz or private label or even the organic ketchups. The organic ketchups have just as much sugar as regular ketchup. It's just organic sugar. So it's really, and that was something that really upset me because I just knew it, it's not better for you, right? From a health standpoint, from a metabolic standpoint, it's not better for you. Um, maybe better for the environment because it's organic, but it's not better for you because of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the sugar is still terrible, still destroying your, your, um, hormone balance. And, uh, so we, uh, it was something that I didn't want my kids to eat because sugar ketchup is basically red corn syrup. It's got more sugar per ounce than ice cream, um, uh, a bot, 20 ounce bottle with a quarter pound of sugar in it. That's the same amount of sugar that's in a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts. So if your family's going through a bottle of ketchup a month, they're eating a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts a month. Like that's extra in their diet that you don't know that they're getting. And that's the big problem with the standard American diet in, in general is like the amount of sugar that's just hidden everywhere. Um, so people might think, oh, well, I only use a little bit of ketchup here and there. But the problem is, is you're using a little bit of everything here and there and everything has sugar in it. So we need to try to cut out as much as we can um, and replace it with real foods. And so I was battling with my kids over ketchup because I got four kids um, and they're, they're great eaters and stuff like that. But of course there's always problems with one thing or another. And, you know, ketchup was one of those things. I couldn't get them to stop eating. Ketchup. Well, that's how you uh, solved eating something you didn't like is you put a bunch of ketchup on it and you can eat broccoli yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. Cause you're pouring sugar on it basically. Um, and then, yeah, it's, and every parent has had this problem where like the kids won't eat the food, but then if they do let them pour ketchup on it, delete it. And so you're in this like, uh, paradox, this conundrum where, you know, it's like you want them to eat the food. You don't really want them to pour this sugary ketchup all over it, but you know, you need them to eat their dinner. So I thought, you know, there'd probably be a lot of parents out there like me. Um, at the time, uh, I was, uh, we had just moved back to the U S and I was working for a charity that wanted me to launch coffee for them, coffee products for them. So I was, I was getting into food, learning more about food by doing this coffee product. I was seeing what was happening in food and how there was a shift. You know, the millennials were coming of age, you know, at the time they're you know becoming, uh, in their late mid to late twenties and people were, uh, they were demanding better food and reading more labels. And, uh, um, so I thought, you know, this is the time, this is a great time. The market is shifting. Nobody, the, the big brands don't have as much brand equity anymore, uh, brand loyalty. And so this is a good time to try to start something and change, you know, really change something. And I, I just assumed, you know, I, I solved a problem that was for myself. Like, you know, I was tired of losing the battles at the dinner table, so I wanted to win the war. So I, you know, created a better ketchup. And 
<clears throat> the whole idea came back because uh, somebody I knew gave me the idea of putting veggies in ketchup. And uh, I was like, well, it's freaking genius. And he had a terrible idea, which was like, you need to add more sugar to cover up the taste of the veggies. <laughs> I was like, no, no. I was like, no, that's not how it works. The veggies are sweet. And I knew this growing up because I've always been a big cook. Um, like my mom taught me, my mom's Sicilian. And she taught me to cook at a young age. I was the oldest kid. So I was always helping with dinner, making dinner. And uh, both my parents worked too. So I, like we were always trying to, uh, helping out everybody was doing. So I had to pitch in somewhere. And, uh, so we, so I would also make, help my mom make pasta sauces all the time. Cause we always made pasta sauce and we always had pasta sauce in the fridge or the freezer, um, ready to go. And, uh, my mom always said that only lazy Italians use sugar. That's a, it's a crutch. It's something you do if you don't have enough time or you're too lazy to cook it the right way. And, uh, the right way was to cook it with carrots. And my mom would be like, you know, the, my Sicilian ancestors had, carrots growing in their garden that they used in all their sauces. They didn't have sugar because it was too expensive. You didn't have access to it, right? It was a refined industrial product, which before the World War II was uh, much less available. So uh, it just made so much sense to me. And it, and it kind of applies to a lot of different foods, um, you know, whether of all ethnicities and nationalities. Well, um, let me, let me ask you a question here, though. Americanized. Abe, let me yeah. ask you a question here, though. Because it's one thing to say, yep, I got to get the sugar out, and B, I know how to do it because I've got this uh, Sicilian mother who showed me a few secrets with vegetables. But how many, how long did it take to experiment from the, you know, that, if you will, the first kitchen attempt to actually having a product that could go out to retail sales? This isn't an overnight success, I don't think. No, no, it's definitely not. I mean, we've been doing this for seven years and we're still kind of very small and growing fast. So, um, you know, it takes 10 years to be an overnight success typically. So exactly. um, unless unless you've got some, you just hit some lightning in the bottle just randomly by magic. Um, but even though, even and to be fair, everybody needs to know this. Like we have a big problem in our society where we uh, deify people who, like look like they have these overnight successes and things like this. And a lot of times there's a lot more story behind that, especially the ones who scaled up really fast. Like there's, you know, uh, a lot of the ones in the food industry, uh, big successes that happened really fast. Um, you know, they had a lot of money to start with, or they came from a family that had not only money, but had connections in the food industry. Right. And like, you know, you owned a co-packing facility or something like that. And, you know, that's not taking anything away from them from their success because they clearly they would build they built great products and did very well. But, you know, those success stories are not repeatable for the average person. Right. Yeah. That's, uh, that's why I think it's so important to say, yeah, you know, this overnight success baloney. I, you know, I had a lot of recipes right. that didn't work. And and at some point you realize, oh, look, at you can't build a business on ketchup. And and right. you, you went to its natural sister, which was mustard, <laughs> and then went and to and sauce. then went to barbecue yeah. sauce, which is all sort of interrelated condiments uh, with the same problem. They had too much sugar in it, uh, and you've uh, been able to come up with recipes and approaches that take that sugar out. Uh, I want to I want to tell folks that they can find true made foods in these condiments in major supermarkets like Whole Foods and Walmart and Kroger and Sprouts, which is again mm-hmm. huge success to break into into those markets. But but it's not just 
right? We, we have a we have a nutritional problem in this country, not just sugar, but also sodium. Can you talk a little bit about the products and and uh, uh, what what the best ones are in terms of sales? What people seem to like, and 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 also maybe the, about the sodium issue. Yeah, um, so we, we've got the no sugar ketchup, which is our main product. Now, we launched initially with a low sugar ketchup, which we're, we're phasing out. We're just focusing on the no sugar. We launched the no sugar ketchup in 2018. So it's kind of one of those things from an entrepreneurship standpoint where you just you start with something that you think is good enough. Like, so we thought lower sugar is better than, you know, full sugar. We should go with that. And then we we finally were able to develop a no sugar project that we launched in 2018. It really hit the market in 2019. And that's really in 2020 is really when we started saw some growth from it. Um, the, uh, so that's kind of that, that testing and, and figuring out and getting the right product out um, thing. So now the no sugar ketchup is by far our biggest product by far. And it, and it does really well. Um, we also have six barbecue sauces. Um, you know, I wanted to get into barbecue sauce. Barbecue is a natural movement. Typically, most barbecue sauces are a lot of them are tomato based. Um, so it, they have a similar, um, uh, you know, ingredient and cooking style as ketchup. Um, and so it was a natural movement into barbecue. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to really disrupt barbecue because I thought I love barbecue, wanted to do something better with it. And we went into uh, barbecue sauce. And so I, I partnered with Ed Mitchell and his son, Ryan. Um, Ed's a, also a veteran. He's a, a Vietnam veteran. And he's a legendary pit master out of Wilson, North Carolina, uh, who is just he's the kind of pit master who was the real legend before there were barbecue circuits. And, you know, the kind of guy who got famous before there were barbecue competitions when and he's famous because his family has been doing it a certain way for hundreds of years. None of this like weird self-taught thing with hacks and, you know, um, shooting it up with injections, the meet up with injections or anything like that. This is, this is like the real deal. This is like how you cooked for a hundred years, um, in Wilson, North Carolina. Um, so it was a natural great fit for us to partner together and they've been uh, huge partners in that. So we've got these great six barbecue sauces. One of them is a low sugar product for Kansas city style and the rest of them are all no sugar. Um, all the other the skews. Um, and yeah, we do try to reduce the sodium. Uh, we don't claim reduce, reduce sodium or low sodium because, uh, number one, sugar is our, we think sugar is the number one enemy out there in the standard American diet. And that's the, that's our focus. Um, and number two, um, and number two, we're all about the veggies and adding extra veggies for the natural sweetness and, and nutrition enhancement, um, to the product. So, yeah, there's only so many claims you can really own. Um, and three, like we do have to have salt and sodium in the product because it, you got to make it, you know, taste good at some level. Um, and we are a flavor first product too. We want to be, you know, we want to say that our products can compete with conventional products, but we do try to maintain a lower sodium level. And we're typically about 25% lower than conventional products from a, uh, a sodium level. Yeah. Somebody who has to read uh, labels for sodium, uh, uh, it, it is lower sodium by a lot. Um, so if you're looking to get the sugar out and you're looking also not to just trade it off for way too much sodium, I'd uh, tell you to take a look at True Made Foods. Hey, uh, Abe, tell folks where, you know, if they're not near one of these stores uh, that I mentioned earlier, or maybe they're not uh, stocked up the way they want uh, with all the products, um, tell folks where they can find out more about this and maybe order up. Yeah, we've got an awesome um uh, website you go truemadefoods.com if you just google true made true made foods you'll find us um and 
we've got, uh, you know, you can buy three packs or six packs of any product, or you can buy our variety packs. We have a number of different combination packs you can get with different sauces um, to try everything out and see what you like. Um, it's so truemadefoods.com. We do sell a, a few items on Amazon. Um, our biggest sellers are the, the ketchup, the sriracha, and the uh, Kansas City style barbecue sauce are on Amazon as well. Um, and we'll be adding the other products soon on Amazon in 2022. Um, but for now, it's a uh, multi-packs on our website is the best thing if you're not near a Kroger or a Whole Foods or Sprouts. Um, but if you also go to our website and use the uh, Find Us located store locator, if you go to uh, the website and click on Find Us, the store locator does a pretty good job of finding which products are sold near and around you um, based on your zip code or um, by uh, looking at your IP address. Uh, so it's a, yeah, it's, it's pretty, a great uh, business model, uh, innovative, scrappy, uh, really hits a need in the kitchen for folks to get some sugar out and lower sodium. Uh, we're really happy, Abe Carmack, that you're able to spend a little time with Veterans Radio today and explain how a nice kid from uh, Washington, D.C. and Brooklyn, New York, uh, got into the, through the Navy to the London Business School and ended up thinking, I got to fix this ketchup thing. So uh, <laughs> a, a, a great uh, a great story, Abe. Do you have more products in the pipeline you can talk about? Yeah, we're launching um, three rubs uh, next year. So they'd be fantastic rubs. They're all they're again family recipes from Ed Mitchell. Each one of these rubs has been refined by you know generations of pitmasters coming from Wilson, North Carolina, um, and you know we, we've got a pork rub, a rib rub, and an all-purpose rub that are coming out, and they're just amazing. I've been using them. Uh, the samples that we've been making, I've been using them all fall um, on ribs and uh, pork shoulder and um, chicken for the all-purpose stuff, and it's just incredible. So it's really exciting. They're all no sugar added. Um, all natural products. So I'll be whole 30 and paleo certified. Um, really excited for those, those to hit the shelves and they'll be available on the website as well. So uh, really, really great products that we're really excited about. Abe, thanks for spending a little time with us today on Veterans Radio. Thank you. Thanks for the time. I really appreciate it. And I want to thank everybody for listening to Veterans Radio today. I am Jim Fossone. It's been a pleasure to be your host. I'm a veterans disability lawyer at Legal Help for Veterans, and you can reach us at 800-693-4800 or LegalHelpForVeterans.com on the web. You can follow Veterans Radio on Facebook and listen to its podcasts and Internet radio shows by going to VeteransRadio.net. And until next time, you are dismissed. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at one 800 693 4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. We again want to thank our national sponsors, the National Veterans Business Development Council, NVBDC.org, Eisenhower Center, VA Ann Arbor Health Care System, the Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles Chapter, Ann Arbor, Michigan, VFW Graph O'Hara Post 423 in Ann Arbor, and the American Legion Press Corn Post 46, also in Ann Arbor. They keep us on the air, as does your support. Go to Facebook, go to veteransradio.net, and support our efforts. And until next time, 
you are dismissed.